holy kiss. I am Christ the Messiah, and you are not. Yea, look upon me, and know me. Kiss my feet, weep over them with your finest nard. You must all eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, like a honey-flavored scroll. For is it not written, I shall burn the chaff and the dross. Thy favorite books are none other than those written by my servant Paul. Does he not write with the denseness that only true faith and fervent works of only the purest and most dedicated can convey? Double negative is on me, and yea, full stops betray a heart of compromise. But you are an evil and perverse generation, dealing treacherously and wickedly with me, and I shall visit upon thee the locusts and the sores and pestilence, for you are stubborn like ostriches in the desert, and therefore out of the west a fruit shall rise with feet of bronze and legs of cedar and a head of a leopard with three smaller heads protruding, that of a goat and a lion and a buzzard with a tongue of fire and a beak of copper. Does thou not know that faith without works is dead? And hear ye this, a work which all of mine followers must count pure joy is eating my word with my flesh. And to eat, one must chew. Beware the false prophets who would dilute my word with lascivious slander and easily structured sentences. <laughs> Woe to the sorcerer's compromiser. They will hang from the city wall like paper accordions, like a contorted paper accordion. For I am such double-minded men, I have a message of my own. Depart from me, you double-minded. Goats with pens, the very diary of Judas, the text of Ananias and Sapphira. For is it not unlike the Aaron Baalus not permit the flax to bend under the weight of the staff when not yoked to the bullet turning outside of the sheaves? <laughs> or consider this. A certain man from the hill country of Judea had eight donkeys. Three of the donkeys he served took on a trip to the poor towns near Galatia. Two of them he sold to a certain Pharisee named Dominus. The third he took as his own and set sail for Galatia. Of the many eight donkeys, a wild man who roamed naked through the hills released them from their folds between the changing of the guards at night, and they were devoured by the dogs who lived outside of the town. The owner, upon waking and finding them, was taxed threefold their purchase price because they were not counted him as a loss because the dogs were wild. For after a time, two times, and a time and a half, my watchman shall appear forty-nine times, minus the time during the latter rain of the second son of the second son of Persia. <laughs> and as for the rest of the working between the times and the time and a half, are they not recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah? For you must show me in the darkness those who are blinded, but this I pray you, make me relevant, make me contextually justified. Hold me in your nightcap as an example to those who sleep with their small ones. For you shall bring bread that shall not require water to eat, and oil that cannot be held in cups made by men. Peace be with you, but remember this. My father and I are watching you. The time is short, the road is narrow, the hour is late. Darren, I charge you to bring my word. Come forth, my son. <laughs> bringing us such an encouraging word and speaking into the lives of so many this morning. You may take your seat. And please give him a round of applause. (laughs) 
did make my mistake though. He referred to donkeys as donkeys. Say no more in regards to that. I was reminded of a lesson last year when I was teaching, and a student put their hand up and said, um, just a minute. And I was anticipating a, a question of, you know, about what I was teaching. I was teaching a fairly straightforward concept that wasn't that difficult, I thought, and I thought I put in a pretty good effort of speaking clearly and concisely and sharply. And the student put a hand up and said, Mr. Bennett, yes. I didn't understand a word you said. And in the same way, I think that's my learning colleague, I have to say, what exactly were you talking about there? That's so King James Jesus like. Now, I don't know if you've read the book King James Jesus, my imaginary is, I beg your pardon. Anybody read it? There's a few people that have, and it is an interesting book. It, uh, it takes you to far out places, and it certainly challenges your thinking. And in the book, King James Jesus exists, and he is a person that did speak in a language not too dissimilar to our learned colleague, and he spoke in a language that can be only described as pompous. Elizabethan Shakespearean English. But maybe you want to speak in that sort of style when you think about these words. Behold, thine, unto, whosoever, propitiate, thee, saith, ascent, lo, thou, verily, this verily mean. Words that in today's language mean nothing to most of us, most of us. In the book, no one really understood King James Jesus. Whenever he spoke, no one could understand him, no one alive. He quotes from the King James Bible, which was written in 1611, took seven years to write, and it was written because there were two Bibles that were contextual, or rather, that were irrelevant at the times. That were, uh, yeah, and so, took seven years, written in 1611, and it is still, today, 400 years later, a wonderful translation. And no doubt many of you have read the translation. In fact, it was our only major translation up until the mid part of the 20th century. However, the language and style of writing does not really make it accessible to an audience uh, that speaks modern English. Along with his British accent and his inability to connect with an audience, King James Jesus is also seen as a, a classical, formal uh, person with perfect gold hair features. He's a lover of long-standing traditions and rituals. <coughs> Excuse me. He's superior in style, condescending in manner, unfriendly and unapproachable. He's far too serious, I feel, and stuck up. He can't take a joke in the book. He lacks compassion for the less fortunate, the undisciplined, the diseased, and the down-and-outers. He's the type who would frown if he went to a, a restaurant in order to get a, a lemon lime and lettuce, or bought a ticket in a chukra, or had meat on Good Friday. Ladies, he would prefer it if he wore dresses. He would prefer it if he wore a hat or a veil. And then, only suits. Noel was telling me just in the break there that he was in a, a particular denomination that had he wear, he had to wear a suit for many, many years. And one particular day, he came to church, it was a hot day, and he didn't have his suit jacket on. 
And apparently he was scolded. He was scolded by the leadership because he didn't have his suit jacket on. And of course, the ladies again, definitely no makeup. Laugh if you will, but my wife grew up in a home where makeup was banned. Was banned for many years as it was considered vain. His message to anyone who can understand it is be morally upright, be good, follow the traditions of the church, read and speak like Shakespeare, and you will be gladly accepted into heaven. Can you imagine being in a service and listening to King James Jesus every week? Perhaps some of you may even decide that I can't bear this any longer, or alternatively, you may just simply fall asleep. Let's listen to Mr. Bean as he struggled with the very same thing. Hang on, the preacher was still preaching! And uh, he had to wait for the 15 minutes 
to to uh, to play the organ, and it was <laughs> the church joke for a whole year that uh, poor old Gary Mansfield uh, unfortunately fell asleep, and you know it was caught out. I hope none of you fall asleep here today. I remember preaching in a, in a church in Alma, of all places. You want to know where Alma is? Actually, not Alora. Alora, is it? And it was a Sunday afternoon. It was a very, very, very hot day. And I was preaching to a small group, perhaps uh, 20 or 30 people. And this lady, oh, and the service was just nodding off so badly. It really got me, actually. And I, uh, I decided to, uh, right, come on, everybody. And I, I dolled her up with a, with a loud point. So I hope none of you fall asleep. I'd like to, to talk to you today for the remainder of our service. I mean, I'd just, just in regard to that, uh, there are many non-Christian Australians, largely due to a traditional church upbringing, that feel that Jesus is irrelevant, that uh, he is boring, that Christianity promotes a boring, formal, traditional, rules-based lifestyle that, that is largely uninviting and unfriendly and unaccepted. And... You know, does this really reflect, though, who Jesus is? Who Jesus really is? What the church is really like? And if not, then who is the real Jesus? What is he like? I'd like to read a scripture from the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15, just one verse. Now, the tax collectors, verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Interesting scripture. The real Jesus, first and foremost, was up close and personal with all people in all environments. For much of his public life, Jesus was out there mixing with people. He took initiative to connect in the temple and the streets in public places, in the country, in the city, boats, in people's homes. A Jewish proverb says, the wise does it once, but the fool does it last. He was especially drawn to people rejected by society. He was friendly, he was approachable, and, it was, and they were attracted to his message, to they were attracted to him. This doesn't look like King James Jesus at all. At all. Jesus here in this parable is mixing with and eating with tax collectors and sinners on the banks of the Jordan River, just a month away from his crucifixion. And to eat with someone in those days was regarded as a real token of acceptance. Tax collectors, as Pastor Carl mentioned a couple of weeks ago, were despised by all in society. They were employed by the Roman army to fund their occupation in the region. And then he talks about sinners, and sinners were regarded, they were, they were regarded as the low of the low. They were people who were diseased, who were outcasts, who were disreputable, marginalised. And Jesus is hanging out with them in spite of their weaknesses, in spite of their failings, in spite of, of who they were. Jamie Buckingham, one of my all-time favourite authors, he wrote a book called Where Eagles Saw, a tremendously great book, in fact, probably one of the best book that I've ever read, said regarding this passage in another book called Parables, 
He said Jesus was mixing with the riffraff people of the land, the non-religious types. Jesus was mixing with the non-religious types. I have to say that I was one of those non-religious types. I was living a typical teenage life in the suburbs of Darwin, far from God, and it just so happened that our neighbours across the road were followers of the real Jesus. And one day, an older brother of my friend who was part of that family walked across the road, just simply walked across the road, and just out of the blue said to me, Darren, I'd love you to come to church. I'd love you to come to my church. Now, I respected his point and his request, but I had my own version of Christianity. I had my own version, and it was truly the King James version. Jesus, I thought, was distant, irrelevant. I thought he was pompous. I thought the church was far too traditional for me, irrelevant again, as I said. His church, he said, was a little different. There were relevant messages. There was joyful singing. There were people being healed of sickness. I kindly refused, but then he said to me something that, hmm. He said, I'm going to get my church to pray for you. I said, what the, the, the? I said, oh, okay. Why did he have to do that? Because I think those prayers were answered. I started to have a desire to go to church. I couldn't believe it. I lived a good life, I lived a righteous life, I didn't swear, I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, I didn't... I was a good boy, I was a good fella. Ultimately, six months later, I finally worked up the courage and the desire to walk in to a church. It wasn't in Darwin, it was on, on, holidays, on holidays in Melbourne. And I looked up the phone book and found a church in Richmond, all places, Ridge Road Christian Church. And the pastor there was Philip Hill. And after a couple of deep breaths, I walked in. I was late, as usual. And I walked in, and it was a church not too dissimilar to this and of this size. And there was people dancing, people singing. There was joy. I didn't have to cross myself. I didn't have to kneel before I sat down. I was intrigued. And you know, I like it. There's something in me that says, this is good. This is what church should be like, I think. You know, I sat down and it didn't deter, even though the service had already started, it didn't deter a guy called Mark. He just came up to me out of the blue and sat down with me. And he said, oh, my name's Mark. I noticed you're here on your own. And I just, just want to hang out with you. And you know, he, after the service, he, he invited me out for lunch and hang out with his mates and, and then invite me back to the evening service. You know, I was just, I was so impressed. I've been used to sort of King James style of religion, but he was a young man, a follower of Jesus. And he, he didn't have any expectations on me. He didn't preach to me. He, didn't, he was friendly. He was accepting. I never felt like he looked down on me. Even though I was a numbskull when it came to the things of God. Back to our story in Luke 15. Being with tax collectors and sinners, but I was offensive to the religious people of the day. This wasn't cool. In fact, in Erwin McManus's book, 
book unleashed. He said that for Jesus to become a friend of sinners, this was the most insulting thing that they could that Jesus could have done to the religious people today. You can rest assured that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not connect with these people in any way, shape or form. And there were a number of reasons why. I just want to share briefly a couple of those reasons. Firstly, they were arrogant people. They said, this man mixes with and eats with sinners. They were above everyone else. They had their moral high ground. They looked down on everyday people as they were lawbreakers, diseased and outcasts. In Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 39, it talks about a time when Jesus uh, was with the Pharisee. They were about to eat a meal, and the Pharisee was surprised, if you read the scripture on the, on the PowerPoint, was surprised that Jesus didn't wash his hands before the meal, a rule and a law and a tradition as part of their, their way of life. Interestingly, it says the Pharisee was surprised. I mean, Luke, the writer, must have seen Jesus, a facial expression or something. You know that someone poked a face at you? I was, I had a bit of time thinking about what a face looks like that sort of looks down on someone. It's not easy to mimic. But have you ever had that? Have you ever experienced that sort of, you know, disapproving look, as it were? Religious people in the extreme are arrogant. They keep their distance, poke faces, as I said. Some assume incorrectly as to the reasons for why people suffer. And I think the Pharisees did in those days. You have this tragedy, you have this illness because you have disobeyed God. It is his judgment on your life. I think of a couple of Job's friends as scriptural examples of men judged incorrectly and outside scripture. Secondly, they were indifferent. The Pharisees didn't really care about the man with the withered hand that the scripture in Luke 6, verse uh, 6 to 9. Again, Jesus is mixing with people from all walks of life and it was on the Sabbath and he went to the synagogue and there a man with dropsy with a shriveled hand was uh, before Jesus. And the Pharisees, verse 7, the Pharisees and the teachers and the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And then Jesus said to them, said to them, I beg your pardon, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And what does he do? He heals the man on the Sabbath. They weren't interested in the man and his need. They were only interested in catching Jesus out. You know, religious people in the stream don't really care about people a comedian once wrote that scientists have found a cure for apathy. However, they claim that no one has shown the slightest interest in it. Some people may not feel superior, but they don't necessarily go to your way to learn about others either. Perhaps it's because they're indifferent, they're apathetic. It takes effort. And thirdly, just quickly, they lack integrity. Outside, the Pharisees looked good, they had the box seats, they were. You know, they were the, the moral, upright people of the day. But inside, they, their motivation was impure. Their motivation was wrong. Jesus said in Luke 
1139. You Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup of dish, the inside you're full of greed and wickedness. And in the extreme, religious people are full of their own importance. They love to impress with their high moralistic lifestyle. They set standards of living that no one can attain. And yet in their own hearts, like everyone else, they fail. They make mistakes and fall short. Perhaps this morning you're a person that has been on the receiving end of religion, the religion of King James Jesus. Where you experience pain and heartache from some who have called themselves perhaps Christians or religious people, you may have felt judged inappropriately, you may have felt unloved and rejected because you couldn't measure up. My hope and prayer is that you see the real Jesus today. The one who loves being with you. The one who loves you just as you are right now. The real Jesus connected effectively by, connect, by communicating simply and clearly. So Jesus connected by being with people, being where they are. He took initiative. But then he also communicated with them clearly and simply. And back in Luke 15, Jesus shares three stories, one after the other, clearly articulating his reason for coming to earth. The first, of course, is a parable, a story about a lost sheep. A man has a hundred sheep, one gets lost, and he goes after the other to bring it home. He'll go after the one to bring it home. And then it goes on and says... He had a party to celebrate. The second story is about a woman having ten silver coins of great value to her and loses one. It says she lights a lamp, sweeps the floor and searches carefully until it's found. And again, has a party to, with her, her family and friends to celebrate. The third is the story of two sons and a father. One son asks for his inheritance inappropriately and goes off, wastes his money on a foolish lifestyle. He finally comes to his senses and makes his way home. The father runs out to greet him, you know the story so well, and then puts on a party to celebrate. In the third story though, there is a twist in the narrative and I just want to park here for a moment because it's relevant to our examination of King James Jesus versus the real Jesus. The other son is resentful. He doesn't want to come to the party when the father invites him in. The older son, the older brother. And he says, all my life I've slain for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. He said, he was the King James Jesus follower for sure. You've never put on a party for me. You've never done anything for me. Things aren't going the way he wants. So what does he do? He cracks an arm. He cracks a stack attack. It seems that he was blinded by pride in his moral record. This particular parable highlights something very powerful. The youngest son's journey to supposed happiness was through self-discovery. But the older son was through moral conformity. Both were in the main very unhappy. Both were lost. And both needed a saviour. As you read the parable, as you read the story, you discover that Jesus, that Jesus says that the father went out 
to appeal to the older brother to come in and enjoy the party. He's putting out the olive branch to the Pharisees, to the religious people of the day. He's trying to show them a mirror of themselves. He wanted them to see that they too were sick and in need of healing. Three parables and one incredible point. Lost people matter to God. All people matter to Him. And Jesus summarizes His ministry as a rescue operation. Luke 19 verse 10. It says that He came to seek and save the lost. Beth Parker, the writer of a Christian bestseller called Kisses the Cake, said this, I've noticed something about people who make a difference in the world. They hold an unshakable conviction that individuals are extremely important, that everyone in life matters. Jesus was that person and is that person. You know, from these stories, I learned a couple of things. Firstly, it's, it's a real skill to make a complex matter simple. And I think it helps to connect people better, to connect, connect with people better when we can do that. Albert Einstein said this, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it enough. There's a story of a preschooler, a young boy who was eating an apple in the back of the car. And he said to his dad, Dad, why is my apple turning brown? And the boy's father explained in depth, because after you take the skin off, it's exposed to the air and causes it to oxidize, thus changing the molecular structure and turning it into a different color. There was a long silence, and the little boy in the back of the seat said, Dad, Daddy, are you talking to me? Jesus spoke at people's language. He speaks in your life where you're at right now. He doesn't speak above them. He spoke plain, easy to understand language. That's what Alpha is all about, the course. It's a course designed to explain the key elements of Christianity in a simple, straightforward way. My friend Mark, that I mentioned earlier, invited me back to church that night, as I said. And Pastor Phil Hills shared a clear and concise gospel message. He spoke about God's holiness, his love for humanity, and desire for reconciliation. And how we failed and turned our back on God. And he spoke about Jesus coming to the earth and the plan around that, seeking out lost people, and ultimately giving his life, dying on a cross, and paying the price for all our long doing, past, present, and future. And that he rose again and is alive today, and that his promise of eternal life is true. And that he offers forgiveness and right standing for God, with God, I beg your pardon, to all who believe. You know, Jesus often used stories to convey a point, as we've discovered in this chapter. And experts in communication agree that it is the best way to capture people's interest by telling a story. In Matthew 13, verse 34, Matthew 
is recalling the fact that Jesus spoke using parables and stories a lot in his ministry. In fact, he says, and I love the message paraphrase translation here, because it sort of just describes it so beautifully. All Jesus did that day was tell stories, a long storytelling afternoon. This storytelling fueled by prophecy. I will open my mouth and tell stories. I will bring out the open things hidden since the world's first day. You know, we all have a story, don't we? It's our story. It's our life story. And when God intervenes into that story, it becomes a wonderful, powerful, life-changing story. How you were lost, how you were saved, and how your life is being transformed. Our story is evolving. It's always changing. But it's a powerful story when God's involved. And thirdly, the real Jesus inspired people to action. The real Jesus connected with people from all walks of life. Secondly, the real Jesus connected by communicating simply and clearly with us all, especially through storytelling. And thirdly, the real Jesus inspired people to action. Jesus always inspired people to think, to act, to change, to grow, and to follow. Think back over your life. Who has energized you? Who is it that's strengthened you, that's sustained you? Who is it that's inspired you in your life? You know, was was it a teacher? Was it a leader in your workplace? Was it a pastor? A parent? You know, I worked hard in history because my teacher, Miss Foggo, Yes, that's her name, Di Foggo. Alright, I've got to say that slowly. Miss Foggo had a love for history. And she was friendly and she was engaging. And she put a lot of time and effort into her to teaching. And, you know, I, I just enjoyed it so much. She connected with me personally. I played my best cricket under Mr. McInerney. I got six for none in one particular game against another school. Six for zero, including Adrian. I don't think anybody can beat that. <laughs> Mind you, the other team weren't very good. I think uh, I don't think they can hold the bat for me there, so we can't believe it. But I don't know, Mr. McInerney, I thrived. I was, I was an opening bowler. But then Mr. McInerney retired and Mr. Pearl took over. He didn't believe in me. He didn't think I was that good. So I floundered. I never bowled again under Mr. Pearl. You know what? What is it about certain people? What is it about that we love that moves us to action? That stirs our hearts? I think it was their ability to inspire, to breathe life into our soul, to Touches deeply in our hearts. How do they? How do they do it? What is it that? How do they connect with you? I think it's because they're friendly. They're interesting. They give the listener a sense of uh, that this person has authority and knows what they're talking about, and they speak and communicate with conviction, and they live what they say. I think ultimately. It's because they care. You get the feeling that you matter. 
Steve Jobs, the former head of Apple Corporation, passed away last year. And who of us happened to be impacted by, by him, by the Apple brand? Steve was quite an inspirational man and took a stroke of genius to attract one of the great leaders in America to come and work for him. It was the developing years of Apple and he wanted a CEO of substance and he had one man in mind, John Scully, long-standing CEO of Pepsi Cola. Anybody like Pepsi? There's a few people, not many. Coke for the preference. He resisted the intense overtures. In fact, Steve Jobs at one point put an open checkbook in front of him and said, sign your own salary. That would you like that? That would be pretty good. But he even resisted then. How was he going to lure this man? What was he going to say? What was he going to do? It was one sentence. It was one clear, short, sharp sentence that changed his life, that lured him to Apple Corporation. You can sell sugar water for the rest of your life or come and work for me and change the world. My daughter, working for Macca's around the time when I read that story, and she was debating whether to go through, she had already gone through a certain levels of management, and she was debating whether to go to the higher levels and just stay with Macca's. On the other hand, she was thinking about doing a, a Bachelor of Social Work and considering her future. And I said, I said to Melissa, Melissa, you can flip burgers for the rest of your life, or you can do something worthwhile with your life and change the world. She listened to that and said, Dad, I think you're right. <laughs> She's halfway through a social work degree now. But can I say that if you look at the life of the real Jesus, you will find a person who inspires you beyond words. His story is incredible. The real Jesus inspires people to follow him. Think of the disciples. King James Jesus asked you to follow a few traditions. The real Jesus inspires people to believe in him. To anyone who would listen to the message. The King James Jesus says, live by a set of rules and you'll be fine. The real Jesus inspires people to tell others about him. I think of the woman at the well. Jesus spoke into her life. What did she do? She ran. Ran back to her community. And talked to the people of that community about all that Jesus had said to her. Thus leading to a revival in that city. King James Jesus just says, be a good person. Jesus inspires us to represent him in a cause that is grand, that is epic, that is magnificent, that is truly world-changing. Truly world-changing. To make disciples, to go into all the world, to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Then came the challenge from Pastor Hills to the audience, and I was a member of that audience, would you like to become a Christian? Said. 
begin a journey of following Christ. And he invited people to step out of their seats and come forward. I was sure that my supposed righteousness or supposed righteous life, my good life, meant that I was a Christian. I believed in God. I, I followed rules. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I, I just, my heart though, started pounding. I, I couldn't contain the conflict. I, I, I couldn't sit still. I, I was in incredible conflict at that moment in my life. I am not going forward. I am not going to become a Christian. I am already a Christian. I'm a good person. He prolonged the altar call. I cried out, Lord, help me understand what's going on here. The truth was, as I reflected back on that moment in history for me, I was believing a lot. I was following an imaginary Jesus. Jesus said, be good and you'll be okay. But then, why did Jesus have to die on a cross? Lord, help me to see if you are real. Help me to understand. And at that moment, I felt the incredible peace come over me. I felt what I know now to be the presence of Almighty God. It dawned on me right then it was like a veil that split in two, and I could see it for the first time that Jesus was real, that the gospel is true, that Jesus did come, Jesus died on the cross, that he rose from the dead and he's alive today, that this story, this story, this grand story is true. I got up and walked to the front, prayed with someone, and became a Christian. I was lost, but now found. Perhaps today this could be you. I want to invite people at the end of the service as you're thinking about becoming a Christian. If you're being challenged in your own heart about where you stand with God, perhaps you're like me, you think, well, yeah, I'm fine, I think I'm okay. I want you to be sure. I'd love to pray with you and talk to you more about Christianity, following Jesus. As I conclude this morning, you know, it's easy for me, it's easy for me to not be that lady who asked the question in class, Mr. Ben, I don't understand anything you're saying. It was easy for me to do that because while well, I, as I said, I have a list of reasons as to why this person might not understand. But I mean, perhaps it was something that the Holy Spirit was doing to me at that time. I decided to reflect on my teaching and I realized that I had to take responsibility for this class, that I had to change, that I had to take, that I had to talk in a simple way. But I had to slow down, perhaps. I decided to break my learning into smaller chunks and I introduced greater levels of repetition and a whole bunch of other things into this particular class. I pre-tested more. And I, asked, I started asking students for feedback. How am I going? 
person I know, what is really me? How can I connect with you better? You know, I have to say, this remains one of my greatest challenges. How do I connect with young people? I struggle with it so much. Perhaps it's because I'm getting older. How to connect on their level. How to make the complex simple. How to inspire them to greater levels. And I think there's a challenge for us all as a church. In a similar way, we too, from time to time, need to reflect on our own ability or inability to connect with people. Do we judge people too harshly? Are we indifferent about the needs of others? Do we look down on others? Are we friendly? Do we care? Do we ask questions? How well do we listen? It goes on. Are we able to share our story of God's intervention in a, in a clear and simple way? Well, this morning, we've attempted to answer the question, who is the real Jesus? Well, I can say to you, he is intentionally committed to pursuing you, to finding you, to having a relationship with you, to loving you, to freeing you, to giving you a purpose. He says you are highly valued. You matter to him. That's right. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you that you are very much alive. Thank you that you do connect with us at a very personal level. Your word says that you never leave us or forsake us. As we draw near to you, Lord, this morning, you draw near to us. And that's what we do this morning. We want to reconnect with you, Lord. We want to draw nearer to you. We thank you for your story, Lord. A grand, epic, wonderful story that we understand, we receive, and we appreciate the gospel. Lord, perhaps there are people here today that are struggling. That are struggling with where they're standing with you. I just pray that you would just challenge the world this morning. Be bold, be courageous. To say, Lord, I want to know more about Christianity. I want to talk to someone. I want to be prayed for perhaps. Lord, there are others who have had to struggle and deal with religion, rules and regulations and restrictions and formality and tradition. That's outside the word of God. I do pray for them that you would help them to see the real Jesus. The Jesus that loves them and connects with them. That they matter to you. Thank you, Jesus.